Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come together. We thank you for this day and the opportunity to look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we see a picture of what you think about us as opposed to how we normally think about ourselves through this lesson. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. As the lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. As the apple trees among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was his love. Stay, with, stay me with flagons, uh, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. His left hand is under my head, his right hand doth embrace me. I charge you, O, o daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that ye stir not, nor awake my love, till he please. All right, we're going to stop there. This is uh, words of the bride. And it's kind of an interesting statement. This is one of those places where the chapter break is at a very bad spot because it continues from the previous chapter where it says, Behold, you are fair and beloved, yea, pleasant also are, our bed is green, the beams of our house are cedar and our rafters of fir. I am the rose of Sharon, it starts. You know, so we end up here, uh, I was listening to somebody actually speaking on the Song of Solomon just the other day, and he was talking about how this is the Song of Songs that Solomon wrote, and he, he actually talked about it kind of being an opera. You know, there's, an act, there's action with this song. It's not just a song. This is this is a musical of some you know play where the two are singing back and forth you know, in the song and you know, I wonder what it would be like to see this the way Solomon wrote it. Uh, but it says, "I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys." And rose is kind of an interesting statement here. It is literally it's an, that particular flower that is in abundance in that valley. And if you've ever seen a valley in full bloom, you know we don't you see too many of them here in the in the desert, but you know, every once in a while, I, I got a picture on my computer the other day, and they had different color flowers in each group, and it was like this patchwork of, of uh, flowers out in this valley. It kind of looked ugly because they didn't plan the colors that well, but it was each little field had its own color. He's talking about that kind of thing. I am, you know, I am abundantly beautiful, and the lily of the valleys is beauty. This is the bride talking. Now, there's almost a little bit of conceit in this in this uh, statement. Some people attribute it to, to the groom. I don't think so, because everything after that, it doesn't make much sense to have one little sen sentence in there from the, from the groom. And it says, as a lily among thorns, so my love is among the daughters. So we see this beauty among thorns. And this is a term we even still use you know, frequently. Well, this is, this is the beauty amongst the thorns. You know, you're, you're, the, you're the pretty one else <laughs> out of the group. And uh, the bride, you know, after having started with, I'm, I'm black, I'm, I'm ugly, and the groom now telling her, no, you're beautiful. And now she's responding back, okay, you see me as beautiful, I'm going to say that I'm beautiful as well. And this is something we've got to understand. We hear it so often, I hear it oftentimes, you know, God sees us as beautiful. He sees us as perfect when we are in Christ, because he doesn't see our sin, he sees Jesus Christ. And he sees this as beautiful. And yet, so many times I hear people, well, I just can't forgive myself. I, I just am totally worthless. I can't do anything right. 
Well, you're right. If you keep putting those eyes in there, you're right. You absolutely can't. But God sees you as perfect. And we need to really understand how he sees us. And this is the beauty of the groom telling the bride, you're beautiful. And, and now we're seeing her respond. Because remember in the first chapter, he said, she's saying, oh, I'm, I'm not that beautiful. I'm everything. And he goes, no, this is how I see you. You've got your hair decorated. And he says, I'm going to do these. If you remember what he said, you know, I'm going to put these, you know, these jewels in your I'm going to, I'm going to go, you know, put you. And then she starts seeing herself more the way he sees her. And this is the beauty that comes in when we start really seeing ourselves the way God sees us. Now, if we're not his, then he sees us as, as sinners and black and, and diseased and, and all of that, because that's what we are. But when we're in Christ, we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He clothes us in righteousness and says, here you are. Now you are perfect. You are perfect. And now she's seeing herself that way. I am the beauty. I am the one that is greater than everything. And, uh, and then she also says, and so is my love. My love is, beauty, is beautiful. And then it says, as the apple tree among the trees of wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to me. Now, I tried to figure out what apple tree among the trees of the woods are. It's a, I don't really understand it. I'm not sure why the apple tree is so much better than all the other, other than it's fruitful. It produces fruit. It, it, provides, it provides, but that's the only thing I could find that made any sense to the apple tree being of any great blessing. She's saying, you know, my love is like an apple tree among the woods, trees of the woods. Uh, again, I'm not quite sure, other than it being fruitful, I haven't been around too many apple tree or orchards in my lifetime, so I don't know really what is special about this. And I did some research, trying, a little bit of research, trying to figure out what's special about, an ap about the apple tree amongst all trees. Now, there, I, there's probably somebody out there who you know, could give me this long lesson on why the apple tree is better than all the other trees, but I don't understand. But she's comparing them to an apple tree amongst all the woods. And you know, a lot of the wood is used for, for making things and designing things. Uh, but apple trees, why is it better than a peach tree or a, or a pecan tree or, you know, or a date tree? I don't know. <laughs> she picked apples. And I'm not sure. There's got to be something special about it. If anybody finds it, I'd like to know because <laughs> I couldn't find it. I couldn't find out what it was. But, you know, other than it's fruitful. But again, why would any other fruit tree be there? But he says, I sat under his shadow with great delight. And his fruit was sweet to my taste. This is our relationship with Jesus Christ. We sit in his shadow. He protects us. He's our protector. And the fruit that he provides for us is sweet. This is the greatest thing I know about being a Christian, is just how sweet life is when we're fully dependent upon him. Uh, God, I, I need this. Oh, there it is. God, you protected me. Does he protect us from every single thing that could possibly happen? No, he, he lets some things go. But when he lets them come through, they're for a reason. He doesn't let anything come our way that doesn't have a reason. And that's the good news when we're walking with him. May not, we may not understand the reason, but it gives us great pleasure to go, God, there's a reason this happened. And you're going, you're going to use it for, for good, and I'm just going to accept that. And the more we're able to sit back and accept that there's a reason and that he knows what's going on, it gets sweet. You know, I can't imagine how the non-Christians live and make it through the, half the trouble they go through uh, without the, the, 
peace of God being in their heart and the, the understanding that, it, that there's going to be good. But with us as Christians, we should be able to just sit back and say, God, seems pretty bad, but you've got a reason. And that's how I get through most of anything that comes my way. God, don't know the reason. Even when I mess up, I go, okay, wow, I really messed that up. And, and God still shows me the reasons that it came through a lot of times. And go, wow, all right. Get ready for the next time you test me on this because it's going to come again. And it's usually after you finally pass the test somewhere down the road, you kind of look back and go, oh, failed, failed, failed. Ah, finally, I got it right. But he says, I sit under his shadow. The shadow of the cross, the shadow of his protection. And he is sweet. His fruit is sweet. I, I just love being able to follow God and just have this sweetness getting into his word and growing, being able to learn what he wants us to learn, and being able to just rest. You know, and this is the unfortunate thing. So many Christians don't even rest. And I understand the world not resting. They have nothing to rest in. But when people are Christians and they don't rest in God's love and in his, the shadow of his life, you know, they're always striving. I've got to try to please God. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. You know, I've got to make sure I look good to everybody. Well, the thing about it is if we're just resting in him and eating his fruit, we will look good to everybody else because we will be doing what he desires. And we're not so worried about it. I've met people that are so, that they're totally panicked about everything. You know, if God told them to go down to the street corner and, and witness to the, to the prostitute on, you know, or the pimp on the street corner, they'd be worried that when, no people will see me. I can't, I can't do what you've asked me to do, God. Now, do we want to always do those things? Not necessarily. <laughs> you know, do you want to go into the bar and witness? Yeah, if God told you to, yes. If not, don't go to the bar. <laughs> but be ready to do what God tells you to do. And just make sure you're listening to him. Uh, because you will take a hit. If you go to the bar, you're going to have somebody going, well, what were you doing in that bar? Because there's always somebody who's going to judge what you've done. And they're not going to believe you. God told me to be there. You know, I, I feel sorry for Hosea being told to marry a prostitute. Uh, I can imagine that conversation with mom and dad. Uh, mom and dad, God told me to go marry the Have you lost your mind, son? You know, and all the other guys. You're supposed to be a prophet? How could you dare do something of that nature? You know, I can't imagine the conversations that people had with him. It doesn't record them, but you know, I can, I can understand what, how mom and dad reacted to that, uh, that decision. He wasn't looking to change her. God told him to do it, and he did it, and he had to pay the price for it. Now, are most people told to do that? No. But God told him to. And, you know, we look at this. Do we rest? Are we really being blessed by God by just resting? Faith, rest. It's talked about in Hebrews that our, our, we are just to rest in him. This is why I talk about so often. We come to Christ he fills us, he clothes us, he changes us. He crucifies our flesh and he changes us from the inside out. He changes us. And that's when it's real. It's not me with a whip in a chair trying to put my, put my flesh into to submission because it eventually will come back out like a roaring lion and, and say, you had me caged for too long, I'm ready to come out and I'm going to be victorious. And God is saying, rest. Just let God be God. And 
one of the greatest things, you know, that we, we joke in seminary that the one thing we learn in seminary that there's one God and we're not him. And it really is true. The more we learn that we're not God, the easier our life gets. Most people get upset because they didn't get their way. I'm God and I'm, I'm really important and you didn't give me my way. You didn't, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. And we get upset with people instead of being a servant and just, okay, God, whatever you want. Being a servant is looking to the future, not to now. God, when I get to heaven, you're going to give me all the blessings I deserve, but until then, I'm your servant working for you. And Paul in the, in the New Testament said that while the child of the rich person is a child, they're under the tutelage of a tutor, literally a slave. And they have to do what that slave tells them to do. When they become a man, then they get to tell the slave what to do. And not until then. You know, and right now we are children. In this world, we're children. We need to do what God has told us to do. And eventually, we will be walking with him. We'll be his bride and we'll have rule over the angels. That's, a, you know, people want to say, you know, it's kind of interesting. People out in the world go, well, you know, that person's died. They're the, they're the angel watching over me. No, they're not. They're not an angel. Our goal is not to aspire to be angels. We will rule over the angelic world, which is one of the reasons Satan hates people so much, because it, our position will be above him and the other angels. Now, he's a fallen angel. He won't have anybody ruling over him, and, but he'll be in hell. But the angelic world, this is a big deal. Here we are, mere humans, to rule over them. You know, and I can't imagine how that feels to them. You know, they're, they're, they're subservient, they're submitted, they're doing what they're supposed to outside of the third that fell. But we see here, he says, taste. You know, sit under the shadow and taste. And then she says, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me, it says in King James was, and that is in italics, which means it's not supposed to be there at all. Uh, his banner over me is love, is love. He brings us into the banqueting table. Now, one thing, if you go to a big party, people are not supposed to be unhappy and, dis and, and disappointed at parties. It does happen. You get people that are isolated. But you know, the idea of going to a banquet, a big party, is to go have fun. <laughs> and he says, he brought me into this banqueting room, this, bank this big party, and to be enjoyed. Uh, and usually I have fun. Most of the, when you talk about banqueting tables, there's usually lots of food, and you, most of the time it's good food. I've been to a couple that had <laughs> food that wasn't all that great, but there's usually good food in a banquet. There's, there's activities that are designed for people to have fun. He says he brought me into it, and his banner, his ensign, his standard over me is love. Do we really understand that God loves us? You know, sometimes we don't seem to understand that. We don't really tend to believe that. But God loves us. I don't know why he loves us, because he chooses to love us. <laughs> he loves us. And I've said, you know, I have a hard time sometimes figuring this out. Jesus, you died for us. You created us knowing we were going to be sinners. Jesus, you came and you lived and you died. We get eternal life and you get us. It just doesn't sound like a good deal to me. 
I'm glad for the deal. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I am very happy for this deal. You know, I get everything and he doesn't get, get much as far as I'm concerned. But he obviously sees something in that deal that we don't see. And I don't know what it is he sees, but you know, otherwise he wouldn't have done it. He, you know, it wouldn't have been something that he would do otherwise. You know, why create man and, and die for man so that, so that he gets us? And it says his banner over me is this love. You know, he loves us. And the more we really get to grab hold of that, what does love mean? Love means that he's going to be forgiving. He's going to be gracious. He wants to be around us. You know, when it's true love, you want to be around that person. And, you know, and love here is also the idea of the agape. Love is the term I like to use. It means he made a choice to love us, and he's going to love us. And I love that. It takes the romance out of it. It takes the feelings and the emotions out of it. But by the same token, it gives me something I can hold on to. He chooses to love me. And because he chooses to love me and he does not change, he won't choose to unlove me. Once he's decided I'm gonna, that I'm worthy of love, he will always love. And for mankind, God loves us, as all of the human race. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's love. And he doesn't just love Christians. We want to keep that out of our mind. He loves the world. Now that doesn't mean that if somebody who's rejected Jesus that they're going to go to heaven. They reject Jesus, they go to hell. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And that's what he said. You reject Jesus, even though God loves you, he'll be crying probably as you go to hell because you rejected his gift. He won't be crying because you're, you're, he's having to judge you, but he's going to be crying that you rejected. And it'll pain him to be sending somebody to hell. I'm sure it will. You know, just as... Even as a parent, when you give discipline to your child, you, you, know, you shouldn't enjoy it. Now, I know there's some parents out there that do, and they, and they need to be careful. Because you can get abusive if you're enjoying, enjoying discipline. I never wanted to, to discipline my kids on one side of me because I, it hurt. Especially when, I had to, when they were younger and I had to spank them. You know, taking privileges away from them. I didn't enjoy taking privileges away from them. Because usually it meant that I had to suffer too. Uh, you know, take the privilege of the car away meant that I had to drive them to places often. Uh, taking away their, their TV privileges meant that they were there in your face trying to go, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do now? You know, all these different things. But you knew that it had to be done because you wanted them to grow up to be responsible people. God disciplines us for the same reason. Because he wants us to be responsible. He wants us to learn to change. And when he sends people to hell, I know there's going to be pain there. You know, there has to be. Even though he knows they deserve it, even though they knows that they've asked for it, it's going to be painful on the same time because he loves them so deeply. And said, I gave it, I died for you so that you wouldn't have to do this, and now here you're going to hell. You know, his banner over us is love. He said, stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick 
with love. I'm going to put with in there because, again, we've got a little italics word that I don't believe the of belongs there. Um, stay me with flagons. The whole idea of, of revive or sustain. And flagon here is probably a bad translation because usually when you read flagons, you think of alcohol. But the word in Hebrew is cakes of figs. Okay? Feed me. You know, keep me, keep me supported. Keep me, keep me fed. You know, and this could be at the banqueting table. Seems how we're just right there before that. But he says, you're going to sustain. And how many times does God sustain us with his word and with his love and his, his kindness? You know, you're feeling down and all of a sudden you start bringing God into your situation. Uh, you, you find God lifting you up. You know, I love it when I just start focusing on God in the middle of the problem. And all of a sudden there's a peace that comes in. The idea when I start thinking, God, you're in control. God, you're, you're helping. And as I've said so many times, even when I cause my problems, God still says it's going to work for good. All things work together for good. For those who are called according to the purpose of God. Even if I cause it, you know, God will say, I've got, a, I've got something to teach you from it and it will work for good. And here he says, sustain me with the food, the food of the word, the food of being taught. Very important for us to get with God. Be taught. Read the word. Study the word. Be taught. And I've said it for everybody. We all need somebody teaching us. Because otherwise we get stuck. And a lot of pastors fall into this. They get so stuck in what they understand and what they believe. And don't listen to anybody else. And they get stuck with what, where they're at. And we all can do that. If we get stuck on what I know, I have a limit. No matter, it might be a very low limit or it might even be a really big limit, but there's a limit. I told managers that every manager managed to the level of their incompetency. Now, that could be very low for some of them and before they run out of what they can do. For some people, they can run very large companies with no problems, but there's a point where they have to stop. You know, there is a point where you cannot go any further because of your own skills. Now we know there's synergy that can happen where I can get four or five people helping out and then we go a lot further because we're helping each other out. But we will always stop at some level. You know, it says, you're sustaining me. Comfort me with apples for I am sick with love. There's gotta be something about apples that I'm missing as far as Solomon is concerned and I don't know what it is. But just, you know, the picture here. Maybe Solomon had this really great view of apples that I don't understand. I, I, I even looked at some of the commentaries, and none of the commentaries even commented on the apples part. The, the nearest thing that anybody said about apples was he talked about them being fruitful and, and sustaining. You know, we do have that statement, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. You know, it's, uh, I don't know how far back that goes, but you know, here, though, she's saying, you know, comfort me, feed me with a grape. The, the, the grapes or the figs that are pressed together, you know, comfort me with the apples for I am sick with love. In other words, I am just lovesick. I, I have my whole eyes on you. Nothing, you know, most of us have lived that at least one time in our life when we were so in love that nothing else mattered. Uh, many people get married in that state when that's a terrible time to get married in, when you're in that lovesick stage of, of, of devotion because that's the time when you're not seeing anything wrong with the person that you're in love with. 
Uh, they do something that drives you crazy and you think it's cute at the time. And what you thought was cute you know, when you were first lovesick and all of a sudden you're together for 15, 20 years and all of a sudden it's like, are you still doing that? <laughs> Can't stand that. This person, you know, you don't want to eat. You don't, you don't want to do, all you want to do is be with that person. <laughs> and it says, you know, I'm, I'm, just comfort me. And then this beautiful picture, his left hand is under my head and his right hand does embrace me. This is the intimate embrace. This isn't just a hug. You know, this is, this is the laying in bed. There's nothing sexual in this particular description, but it is just that very intense relationship. Arm, arm under the head, the other one wrapping, drawing them into you. Picture, if you picture God loving you that kind of closeness, just wanting to embrace you and hold you. And this is the bride talking about him. He's, he's there embracing me. The previous chapter said, I'm holding on to him and, and putting his head upon my breast. You know, it's the, the intimacy there was a lot strict, you know, a lot, lot deeper. This is the support intimacy. Nothing, nothing necessarily going on, but just being held, being comforted. I don't think that's necessarily what this one's talking about, because this is a bride and a groom talking about, but you're right. It's, you could take it down to that extreme. He's supporting us and holding us in that, in that, uh, in that picture. I never thought about that, because I've been thinking always about bride and groom in this, when I've read this. But the intimate embrace that God wants to have us. You know, do we really oftentimes think about God wanting to be intimate with us? You know, we, we think of him as being a friend. We think of him as being God. We think of him as being father. But you know, we're, we're Jesus' bride and he wants to have that intimacy, that closeness with us. And he dwells in us, which is about as intimate as you can possibly get. But you know, we don't think about him just sitting there holding us. The shepherd seeking his lamb, when he found that lost lamb, he'd carry the lamb back to the flock. You know, the, the lamb that had been lost usually was panicky and having trouble. And they would be carried back to the flock. They would, have that, they would get to hear the heartbeat of the shepherd as they're being carried. Get to know that he cared for them. This is the attitude that we look at. God cares for us. He wants us to know that he cares for him so that when we hear his voice, we should be running to him. Um, listening to a pastor talk about how he had just bought two sheep and, and the, night, the first night that he had got them, they got out of their pen and ran and they wouldn't come to his voice because he, they hadn't learned that he was the one that was caring for them and, and loving them. So many Christians run from God because they haven't spent enough time with God to hear his voice and to know that he loves them and has a good plan for them. And sometimes it's hard. When God puts us in certain situations and we don't know his voice, it can be pretty tough to go, uh, God, I hear your voice, but it's dark over there. That's a scary woods over there. I don't want to go through that. And that's in Psalm 23. Yea, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God takes us through the shadow of the valley of death. It's, it's when you watch these, these shows and they go, they're coming up to this spooky path. It's all dark and everything, everything looks bad. And God says, okay, I want you to go. We're going, we're, we are going through that path. Uh-uh, I'm not going that way, God. It looks safer this way. No, but we're going this way because I'm with you. And he leads us through those things. And we realize things aren't as bad when he's with us. When we're there, it isn't bad. And he says, I am.
holding on to you with, with this idea. And then the bride goes, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and the hinds of the field, that you stir not up, nor awake love till he pleases. And this is something, I think this one is deeper than most people go to because I really think he's saying there's a time for love to be expressed and a time for it not to be expressed. And in our day and age, people are crossing that line all the time. We have people committing fornication and adultery that should not be crossing this line. They should not be waking up passions before they're supposed to be going on. They're people that have way too much affection and, and, uh, and uh, displays of affection in front of people. Too far, way too far, that should not be waking up passions in, in public places, whether they're married or not. That's, that's irrelevant. You know, there's things that should not go on, and she's telling him, don't wake, don't wake up this love until it's time, until he's ready for it, and it's the right place, the right time. And we need to be very careful of that because there are lines that we can cross. Even as Christians, we cross lines a lot of times and do things that we shouldn't be doing and encouraging things that shouldn't be encouraged. And we are responsible for a lot of these things that happen. He says, and basically she's saying there's a time for it. There's a time for it. There's, and I'm going to wait till he initiates. When does God want us to do things? There is a time to be very in people's face. There is a time to be laid back. There is a time to be aggressive and say, this needs to be done. How do we, what do we look at? What, what kind of timing are we looking at for these things? All right, verse eight. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping upon the mountains, skipping over the hills. My beloved is like a roe, a young heart. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He looks forth at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. My beloved spoke, and I said, and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. Flowers appear on the earth, and times of singing of the birds is come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree puts forth their fig, green figs, and the vines with the tender grape give good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. So here we are. This is still the, still the bride speaking. The voice of my, behold, the coming, he comes leaping over the, upon the mountains and skipping on the hills. You know, this is definitely somebody who's in love. You know, oh, I look, nothing, nothing can keep him away from me. He, he jumps over the mountains. He's skipping across the, the plain. You can almost picture this in the, in the romantic movie, the two running across the field toward each other in slow motion to embrace each other. You know, you know, this is, this is a picture that's being, being, but you know, here we're thinking about God being this way. He answers our calls. He answers our needs and he will be there. Nothing will get in his way. Nothing will stop him. And that, this is easily said about the omni, omnipotent God who's all powerful. <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, nothing will get in his way of helping us. But how many times do we live as if he's not all powerful? Oh, God, I'm in so much a big problem, and, you know, I'll go solve it myself. You know, because, God, somehow you're not capable or you don't care. And here this person is just so in love. You know, hey, here he comes. Look at this. He's, he's, jumping, he's jumping from mountain to mountain. He's skipping over the plains. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. Behold, he stands 
behind our wall, he looks forth at the window, showing himself through the lattice. He is like a, a gazelle or a young deer. And the heart usually is a stag. It's a, um, this is, you know, he's impressive. <laughs> he, he's impressive. He is an impressive as the gazelle or the, or the, or the stag. You know, uh, gazelle are kind of a beautiful animal in and of themselves. Uh, a young deer with a full antlers and, and rack of antlers is very impressive to look at. And he says, this is what he's like. He is beautiful. You know, she's saying he is something I want to look at. And we should be gazing at God because of the beauty that he has. Uh, Isaiah in chapter 6 said he saw the Lord high and lifted up in his train filled the temple and the smoke rose and all of that stuff that he talked about. And what happened to him said, I am undone. I am a sinner. I don't deserve to be here. Part of when we look at God, we will see that we are sinners that don't deserve to be in his presence. But in the same token, we will also be reminded, I am in Christ. I am in Christ. If I'm his, I'm, I am in Christ. And it says he stands behind our wall and looks forth at the window, showing himself through the blossom. And this is kind of an interesting statement. He is looking at us to join us, join him. You know, and too many times as Christians, we will be telling God, well, God, come over here and join me. And God's saying, no, you come to me. Where I'm at is where I'm working. This is where I want things to happen. And you know, we tend to want to do things our way. This word for showing himself at the lattice literally means to blossom or sparkle at the window, you know, uh, at that lattice. God's shining through into our lives and saying, come on out. Too many Christians want to stay hiding and don't want to go where God's at. Why? Because it's kind of scary to walk through the shadow of the valley of death. It's kind of scary to leave your room. You know, what is one of our major diseases that we're facing right now are these people that are afraid to go out, agoraphobia. You know, they're just afraid to step out of their homes for fear. Christians get the same way. Well, I go to church, I, I sing my songs there, I listen to the preaching, but you want me to, God, you want me to go out and talk to people? You want me to tell them about you? Uh-uh, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hide in the church. I'll, I'll do whatever, I, whatever you want me in, in the church, but get me out of the church? Nope. Total fear grips people's hearts. The groom is outside looking in and saying, come on out. Come on out to me. You know, come, come to where I am. You know, we, we've got an exciting thing, and this is what it starts in verse 10. My beloved spoke and said, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Rise up. Get up. Get up out of the room and come. And I love his description, my love. And this, is, this one is not rom no romance in this one, but my very close associate. The one that I, the one that I care about it deeply, my fair one, the beautiful, excellent one. You know, I love that God sees us as beautiful and excellent. It gives us such great courage to know that that's how he sees us. And, you know, the sad thing is there's so many people, and I've, and I've talked in, to different people with marriages, where one or the other one does not think they're attractive to the other person because they seem to be getting rejected. And that's not the way God is with us. He says, I love you. 
And yet, so often we go, there's nothing you can love about me, God. I am, I am not worthy of love. And God said, I love you anyway. I see you as beautiful. And it's really sad when the other person will not see themselves the way the other person sees them. And unfortunately, most of the people I've talked to, it's been the woman who does not think she's beautiful enough for the husband, even though the husband will look at her and tell her she's beautiful, she will never accept it because she is being comparing herself. The world says it's beautiful is that it changes over time. Right now, we're in a place where people are supposed to be beautiful if they're as skinny as a twig and can be blown away by, by a breath of air. You know, 50, 60 years ago, that person would have been sickly and not desired by anybody. They wanted somebody with some meat on their body that could, could, survive, could survive down in the wilderness. Yeah, yeah could pack that wood, carry that wood, be able to survive when things get tough. Beauty, beauty's definition changes all the time. We need to accept that whoever we are wanting to consider us beautiful accepts us as beautiful. God accepts us as beautiful, and we can't be going to him and saying, you know, God, I know you think I'm beautiful, but you're going to argue with God who says we're beautiful? But he says, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. He's calling her. He's, you know, we had this don't wake up love until it's time, and now he's calling her and saying, let's go. It's time to go. And we're going to find out she doesn't get up. And then she has to go find him. Because she didn't, didn't respond when he was there and ready. And uh, so he's calling her. And our need and our desire when God calls us, get up and follow. Because he's, he's not going to wait forever for us to get up and follow. He's going to go do what he wants. And he'll take the, the next best person to get it done. You know, he, if you don't want to get up and do your job, he'll go, okay, we'll find somebody who will. Later on, he'll call you again and see if you're ready to get up and follow him that time, but each time will be for a different reason. But God's plan is not thwarted. If you don't want to do it and you are called, well, God says, fine, you are, you are my first choice. Now we'll go to second. Then we'll go to third. We'll go to fourth. Somebody eventually will answer the call. Now, we as humans would just give up, but God does not. And you might be the second or third one you know, that God's calling, but step out and follow. It says, for lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing of birds has come, the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. It says, the problems are past. There's going to be a time for us when the winter is past, the rains are over, and it's the flowers and birds are singing. It'll, it'll be when we go to heaven for the, and the rapture and the marriage supper of the Lamb, but there's coming a time when all the problems will be past. And then we get to rule with him for eternity. With nothing but flowers and birds and singing. You know, this is poetic, but it'll be just that idea. Everything's perfect. Now, there are people who don't think that birds singing and flowers are perfect, but God will make whatever's perfect for them. Yeah, and the voice of the turtles are in the land. Never heard of I've never heard a turtle, and that's why when I looked it up in the Hebrew, it says turtle dove, which is what I expected it to say. Because I was wondering, when I first read that, the first time I read that recently, I'm going, okay, what's a turtle say? I've never heard a turtle say anything. It may be that, for poetic reasons, they use turtle. Okay, we have, because just as... Oftentimes when we sing songs, we shorten the words out. 
and leave out vowels and stuff because there's only one note there. This could be why there's only the word turtle there, but in Hebrew it says turtle dove or even dove. But in the King James they wrote turtle and I don't know why. And it might it's italicized the verb, so it should, should just say the time of the singing is come. But it's just repetitive. One thing about, we've talked about this, Jewish poetry, poetry is almost always put in couples of thoughts. So you have the bird singing, the turtle dove singing. You have, come forth my beautiful one, my lovely one. You, know, you see this, this pattern in it. Their, their poetry, in the Hebrew poetry, we've talked about this a long time ago, but we'll cover it again. Uh, did parallel thoughts or it did opposite thoughts? One, one or the other, and I didn't, should probably cover that when we started this book because it is poetry, we have done poetry for a while. Uh, they did not get into rhyming schemes or, or uh, sets of numbers and ver you know, uh, lines and verses and stuff. They did thoughts. And their other form of poetry is in like Psalm 119. It's an acrostic. Every, the first eight uh, verses in that chapter all start with the same letter in Hebrew. The second set all started with the next letter in Hebrew. And that one is found frequently. Now we don't see it in English. Okay, because we don't, we don't have the same words, so our words don't always follow that pattern, A, 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 B, uh, like theirs do. So you have to kind of just study it and realize you're reading a poem that we may not realize. But that's why the singing birds, turtle doves, you know, this is, we see this a lot in this section that, uh, that's why she compares them to a gazelle and then a deer and, you know, there's always this coupling together of the words because that is their poet, their style of poetry. And we're in a book that's going to use a lot of simile, you know, similar statements. Uh, in in uh, Proverbs, he does a lot of, here's the good, here's the bad. Here's the good, here's the bad. That's their poetry. They're opposite words, opposite thoughts. A uh, little sidebar of grammar that, grammar that is kind of to, to look for. Uh, he says, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come and the voice of the turtle doves are heard in the land. The fig tree puts forth her green figs. The, the vines, their tender grape, give a good smell. Arise, my love, fair, my fair one, and come away. Because it's time to get up. <laughs> it's time to get up. Everything, everything is good right now. Get out of your hiding room and out to where things are happening. You know, the, the, the fig tree is putting forth its fruit. He goes, the grapes are growing. He goes, get out here and smell what's going on. Uh, we've got a great big uh, cherry tomato plant in our house. I mean, it's only six foot tall. And, you know, if you touch it and you brush up against it, what a smell that comes out. The smell of tomatoes comes out. You know, and this is the way most plants are. But you, you get out there and touch them, and all of a sudden, the aromas come out. He says, come out here, smell, smell what's going on. In Hebrew, in, in uh, Psalms, we're told, come and taste, see that God is good. You know, he invites us, he comes, come and taste, see that I am good. When we sit back and do nothing, we're only observers trying to watch what's going on, we really don't understand what's really good. And there's so many people that just sit in a church watching you know, let me, let me watch and see what's going on. You know, no, you get in there and get involved and taste and see. Find out what God's doing and get your life changed and, and see how he really, truly 
wants to bless us. And it's an amazing thing is each point when we step out, God rewards that stepping out of faith and says, oh, wow, here we go. The world may not take it so good. The world may not like it. But God says, come, come and see, taste. You know, oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye by the well and drink, as they're told in Isaiah. You know, come and purchase. You who have no money, come and purchase food and drink from God. You know, because God's purchase is cheap. He gives it to us. <laughs> uh, and he says, come, come and join me. And then he goes at the very end of 13, is arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Again, his picture of my love, the one I'm in close association with and the one that I think is beautiful. He keeps repeating, you are beautiful, come. <laughs> come with me. I love you and you're beautiful, come. And we see this over and over. And it goes on in verse 14. Oh, my dove, you are... You, uh, oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the stairs... Let me see your countenance. Let me hear your voice. For sweet is your voice and your countenance is comely. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the, vin, the vines, and our vine, for our vines have tender grapes. My and I am his. He feeds me among the lilies. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, turn my, turn my beloved and be you like a roe and a young heart upon the mountain, mountains of Bethur. So here we see, he says, my love, you are hiding in the rocks, hiding in the steep places. You know, doves do tend to try to do that. They hide in these hard to reach places because that's their protection. They're not a strong, vicious bird. So they, they go into places that are either easily defended or very hard to get to. Uh, you know, Saw a picture the other day of mountain goats standing on a cliff, and I don't even know how they still were standing on the cliff. I didn't see anything to stand on, and they're standing on this cliff that looks vertical. You know, protections of things like that. How do how did they even get there in the first place? You know, and it's but you know the tur the dove hiding. He says, you know, come you that are in hiding in the secret places. Let me see your countenance. God wants to see us face to face. He wants to. You know, and it's just an amazing thought, you know, that he wants to see us. He wants to be in our be have us be in his presence. He says, and, he'll, and let me hear your voice, for sweet is your voice, your countenance is comely. I love this, that God wants us to praise him. He wants us to sing to him. He wants us to pray to him. You know, uh, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, we're told in the Psalms. And literally that word noise means noise. He's not even saying make a great, great song because even if you really think about it, he invents songs, he invented voices. What are our voices and our songs compared to him? Even if you're the superstar songwriter and singer. Compared to God, their voice probably is nothing. God says, let me, let me show you how to sing. <laughs> you know, uh, let me show you how, how singing is supposed to be done. And he does it on a day-to-day -day basis and all that he shows us and the whole harmony of all of nature and the whole harmony of what he's put into place. He says, I can sing you a song. You, you, you think you're special? Let me sing you a song. And he says, but he also says that our voice is sweet. You 
He just wants to hear it. It's the mother listening to their baby, and even if the baby's whining or crying, you know, there's those times when, when she's not frustrated and not angry, when she's feeling love toward him, that it's like, this is my child. I don't care what noise he's making, I don't care what he's doing, this is my child and I love him. That's God's love toward us. These are my children. I love them. Yeah, they're a pain in the neck sometimes, they're, they're, they're doing the wrong things most of the time, but I love my children. We really, and I can't stress this, you know, we need to really start understanding how God sees us. He wants to see us. He wants to hear us. You know, people go, well, I don't have a problem that's big enough to do it, take to God. And I've heard said this so many times. Well, what problem of ours is going to be big to God no matter what? Okay. No matter what our problem is to God, who creates the universe, to holds the whole universe together, and maintains the feeding of every single animal on this world, what problem that I have is going to be big to God? Uh, well, God, this is just a small problem. Yeah, well, all your problems are small. You know, obviously, he's not going to say that to us, but I know he feels it. And well, all your problems are small. Just tell me what it is so I can help you fix it. How many of us with our children wanted to help them, even in what their children thought were, were big problems? You know, their heart's been broken or something really bad has happened and they and we go, okay, we see it as an adult, you know, down the road, 30 years, you know, in 10 years, your next, your next week, you're not going to remember this. Now, you can't tell them that because they're not going to believe it, and that's not some, a way you comfort them. Uh, well, you know, just get over it because in 20 years, it's not going to matter one way or the other. You're not even going to remember this, uh, this issue. Now, unfortunately, we have people that tell people that kind of stuff, and in, but it is a true statement. In most of the things that happen to us, and given enough time, you will barely remember it. You'll be over the pain of it, and you'll be moving to the next things that are problems. But that's not how you get comfort in the moment. You know, if you can comfort yourself that way, that'd be one thing. Because I, like I told you, I learned the hard way to not quote Romans 8.28 to somebody that was having a hard time. They just about ripped my head off. You know, and I go, okay, you don't believe it, then you're not going to believe it when you're in the middle of trials. You know, we have to know what we believe before we get there. And we have to make decisions that we're going to trust God before we get there. We have to know what the limits on are, how close we're going to come to a sin before we get into that sin. As I would tell teenagers, the time to decide what you're going to do in the backseat of the car is not when you're in the backseat of the car. Because if, you go, if that's when you're going to make your decision, you're in trouble. You are going to make all the wrong decisions when you're in your passion, the passions and the heat, and you're going to go a lot further than you ever meant to go. You make your decision not to get into the backseat of the car in the first place. And that's exactly where we're headed to on verse 15. Take the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards. Our vines have tender grapes. And here he's telling you, watch the little things that destroy a relationship. And it is so easy to get an attraction for somebody or something and be pulled away from your attraction for the one that you're supposed to be in love with for life. And he says, watch them and the little foxes. And I've said this over and over, we see so many of these great evangelistic or evangelistic leaders, like maybe not great, <laughs> and they get themselves caught up in adultery. I can almost guarantee that none of them ever thought they would commit adultery. That's just not in your mind as a pastor to commit adultery. But 
they didn't watch the little foxes. They, let some, they counseled somebody they shouldn't have been counseling. They got an attraction to somebody and they let it grow and, and, and move forward with it. And most people don't just all of a sudden decide one day, you know, I think I'm going to go have an, have an affair tonight and, we're going to, and I'm going to go commit adultery. That's not usually, now there are a handful of people that are stupid and do something like that. But most people just put themselves in a situation that leads to it. And it starts out, well, we're just, we're just having lunch together. You know, I'm, I'm, reward, you know, I'm just saying thank you for a job well done. Innocent job, innocent, innocent lunch, no big deal. But you start talking about things maybe you shouldn't talk about. This person now cares for you. Your wife, your wife or your husband hasn't, hasn't shown you affection for months, and this person is appreciative of you. And it starts out just, you know, I like being around this person. You know, and you just start spending time with that person, more and more time, and then intimacy starts to develop, and you, the little touches that start happening, and the next thing you know, it's gone way out of the way, and you've never expected it to happen. The little foxes, you didn't guard against the little foxes, destroying the vineyards. Israel, they would build these stone walls around all the, all the grapevines so that nothing would get in there and, and destroy the, the tender fruit. And he says, take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoiled the mine, protect them. And this literally take means take hold of. <laughs> you're grabbing hold of it, you're taking it back out of the field or killing it, whichever the case said, taking it away so, so that it does not destroy the vineyard. And this is what has destroyed more relationships, more marriages, is not protecting against the little foxes. And Satan will use those things all over the place to try to get people to fall away. And here it's saying, watch these things. Don't let this happen. And it's it's interesting world when because it doesn't even have to be an individual that can get in between you. It can be work, it can be Act, any, anything that is raised above that relationship. And for men, a lot of times it becomes work. You know, and it's a good reason. I want my family to have everything. I want them to do well. I want them to have stuff. Well, most families want the father to be around more than they want the stuff. Now, there are individuals out there who want the stuff, but they're not looking for a marriage in the first place. They just want the stuff. If you're looking for a marriage and family, you want the mother and father together once in a while. And in our day and age, it's getting harder. With women working, they get caught up with this now as much as men do sometimes as they're trying to get a, get a career going and then they never see each other. And then you've got all kinds of foxes running around that get into the way of that marriage. And those kind of marriages almost inevitably will end up with adultery at, at the end or divorce because they're so busy chasing things other than each other. We actually are going to stop here because the groom has stopped talking and we're going to go back to the bride which goes into the next chapter. So we're going to stop at this point and catch up with the groom, groom starting next week. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to keep the enemy out of our families and out of our relationship with you. Help us to always keep our mind to protect the relationship that you've given us. Lord, and we ask those that may be listening that don't know you, that they will accept Jesus as their Savior, admit that they're a sinner, and come to you for the free gift of eternal life. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.